Good morning. God bless each one of you. Let's pause for prayer before we start. Dear Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for the privilege we have to gather together. We thank you that you have given us the privilege of living in a land of freedom, that we can gather together unhindered and unmolested. You have told us that we should pray that this would continue. So we ask that you would continue to work in the hearts of our leaders to allow this to happen, but Lord, help us to be faithful and to make good use of the freedom and the time that we have. Lord, as we look at this subject, I just ask that you would be here with us. Your Holy Spirit would be among us. You would move and direct in each of our hearts. I ask that you would give me the thoughts to speak, and that you would take the words from your word and minister it to the hearts of the dear young people here. Lord, we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Yesterday, I shared a little bit about the fact that I had a lot of issues in my life growing up, and because of that, I was in counseling for close to 20 years looking for answers, and that when I found God's answers, that God started opening doors and bringing people to us and asking, would you share with us how God helped you? Over the last probably eight years, there are many very needy situations that have come. A lot of times more recently or in the last five years, our one minister and myself usually meets together with those situations that come. We try to meet with those people along with their local ministry usually at situations that have came to the end of their rope. They don't know where else to turn. They have tried everything they know. They have gone to this place and that place, this counseling center, that counseling center, and nothing seems to work. And so either Mark or myself will tell them to bring them to us along with the ministry, and it's our desire to lift up what we call a model of discipleship instead of a counseling model. There is a vast difference. Most of us sitting here have been fully immersed in the thinking that comes out of the counseling model. Think with me for a bit about a counseling model. You have a facility that is set aside from the local church. You have someone who is there who has been trained as a specialist in this area. They look at the problem as being some specialized extreme problem that the church can't help. Somehow they separate the spiritual from the emotional. And that comes because they, we look at ourselves as body, soul, and spirit. If your body is sick, you go to the doctor, the physician. If your spirit is sick, you go to the preacher. But if your soul is sick, you go to the professional of the psyche. Because in Greek, psyche is the word for soul. After World War II, 
the psychologists and psychiatrists of the world got together and had some worldwide meetings, and they told the rest of the world that the church has tried to find answers for problems of humanity, and it hasn't worked. Before 1900, you had the Napoleonic Wars over in Europe. You had the, the wars in America, the War of 1812. You had the Civil War. And then in, after 1900, you had World War I. They called that the Great War. Millions and millions of people were killed, slaughtered in the trenches of Europe. And then they didn't resolve the issues. They just had a, came to a place of saying, we're going to stop fighting. It wasn't really a, an end to the war. When they signed those papers there in France in that caboose, And then some, barely 20 years later, Hitler came to power. But the seeds had been sown out of all of the unrest that was left after World War I. World War II came along, and according to some estimations, anywhere from 50 to 70 million people were killed during World War II. We could not imagine that. Dead people being buried in trenches and in <clears throat> thrown into rivers to float downstream, buried in mass graves, people left to starve, all kinds of cruel acts towards humanity. Actually, from both sides. You know, before, during the world, the The Nazis had the concentration camps, but after the war was over, the Allies had actually had concentration camps for the Nazis. Most people don't know that. But there were atrocities committed on both sides of the whole situation. So after that, that is when the world psychologists and psychiatrists gathered together, and they told the church, the church does not have answers for humanity. They said, we are now going to take over and take charge, and we want you to step aside and let us try. It was out of that environment when the psychologist developed the counseling model. The model of a facility that is separate from the church. A facility where the person who's there has been trained to understand the human psyche. Where they look at problems as being something other than spiritual, something other than what the church can help, something other than what the church leaders can help, something other than what God can help. Most counseling centers today are built on that very same model. Most, most Christian counseling centers are built on that same model. Most books written about problems of humanity that you go and buy at your local Christian bookstore are written from that mindset. Like I said yesterday, I bought hundreds of books in my quest to find the answers.
I'll come back to that to give you a little background of why I struggled. I'll be a little bit, I feel like I need to be a little honest, a little vulnerable, but I'm not sure how much to say and how detailed to be. So please bear with me and pray for me that God would give me wisdom. And part of my hesitation is because my family is still living, and I don't want to be disrespectful, but in order to work through things in our lives, we need to be honest. And sometimes in order to help other people be honest, it helps if we're honest. Like I said yesterday, what the world calls abuse, I suffered in basically every way that you, they say you can. However, as I went through the counseling model looking for answers, as long as I looked at the problem as abuse, I never found answers. As long as I saw myself as a victim of abuse, I never resolved the issues in my heart. There was always unrest. There was always that need within to go to the next conference, the next seminar, the next speaking session. There was always a need to buy the next book, book that was being promoted as another new book on these subjects. When my mom was 13 years old, for one reason or another, she developed epilepsy. That's seizures. And she's had those ever since. I was the oldest in the family, and so it was part of our children's obligation to pay attention if mom started getting a seizure where she was standing at the, sometimes she would be at the stove and if she get a seizure, she would actually fall onto the stove and get burned. So it was our children's responsibility to try to look out for that. And if she started having a seizure, help her to the floor and let her lay there. That felt very awkward for a child to need to care for their parent when I was 8 and 10 years old. We would go to restaurants and in the middle of the, the meal, mom always was very nervous around people. And when she'd get nervous, she would usually have a seizure. And so she would usually have a seizure there in the middle of the restaurant. And it's a bit challenging to watch someone have a seizure. And everybody in the restaurant would start staring. That made us children feel quite embarrassed 
ashamed, different then. And so there were other things going on in our home, and and the marriage of my parents was not the way God would have wanted it to be. There was not the love and harmony there that God would want. There was arguing, bickering, challenging of authority. And I was left to witness that. As a young man in school, like I said yesterday, my mind was quite foggy. My thoughts were all twisted and tangled. I had trouble concentrating. And as I look back, it's because I had all that unresolved problems within. I didn't know what to do with it. At an early age of about 10 or 12, a young man... Expose myself and my cousin to some things that should have never happened, which awakened within a curiosity and, and destroyed an innocence that shouldn't happen. And I got into some very deep sin. But from in the beginning, it wasn't deep. You know, you just do a little bit, and then once you start getting into that, it's sort of like a, it's, it's never satisfied. There, you always need to give it more. And I was addicted to moral failure, if I can put it that way, for 10 to 12 years. There was a time in my life that I didn't think that I would ever be free. It had such a hold of my life. Now, why do I say all this and how does that tie in with fear? The title for today is Understanding Fear and Discouragement. Now, this ties in very closely because the Bible says that in Matthew that our heart or that we are like a tree. And Jesus talks about out of the abundance of the heart, our mouth speaks. And I'm not sure if this is going to be big enough for everybody to see, but I'll draw this and step away, and hopefully you can see what what I have here. In fact, I wonder if I can turn it the other way here. It might work. So if we would... If we draw a heart at the bottom with red here, and in Proverbs it tells us that that we should keep our heart, for out of it are the issues of life. When Samuel went to anoint King David, he saw the first son of Jesse come past, and he said, 
Surely this is the man that God hath chosen. And God said, no, you don't understand. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And so we'll put the heart below the surface of the earth where we cannot see it. And this is supposed to represent an apple tree, and I am not a good artist, but I hope you can get the picture. So if we are an apple tree and we have fruit on our branches, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. And so this was an example that over the years, I don't know where I got it. If I got it on my own or from things different people had said. But if we have the horizontal branches be our relationship with other people and the vertical branches be our relationship with God. And if it's from within, out of the heart, comes forth what we speak. And also, Jesus said, from within, out of the heart, come forth all these evil things. But Satan is the enemy of our soul. And he wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy us however he can. And the Bible talks about the fiery darts of the wicked, and that is a, an illustration that I use. And when we get hit with things in life that don't feel good, it hurts. And so it almost sometimes feels like there is actually blood. But when it comes into our heart, it just sort of sits in there and fills our heart up. And we talk about heart. A lot of counseling centers would teach that heart is emotions. I used to believe that way as well. One time a preacher was going to come to our church and speak on the heart that Sunday morning. And I was so excited because our church needed this. It's time our ministers got a hold of this. They didn't understand people and people's problems. I was sure of that. And he started preaching about choices. And I literally started getting mad inside. I'm just being honest. I started getting mad because this man doesn't understand what heart is. Heart is emotions. Heart is feelings. It made me so mad that I went home from church that Sunday, and I got my Bible and my concordance out, and I was going to prove that preacher wrong. And the further I looked, the more dismayed I got, because in the Greek and the Hebrew, heart is mind, will, and emotions. Oh. And it took me a while to be willing to open my heart to God and allow God's word to change what I had believed that I realized was wrong. And I'll come back to that a little bit later too. But here's what, hap- what I found happened, at least in my heart and in people that we work with. Something happens in life. Someone says unkind words. We are mistreated, we think. Life isn't fair. Maybe our parents aren't 
Whatever it is, maybe we got mocked in school, maybe whatever. You all know what I'm talking about. We all face things that don't feel good. As a child, those things go inside, and a child does not know what to do with that. One of our children, when they were about six or eight, one time was troubled. We could tell it. So I asked the child to come into our bedroom that one evening, and I said, what's the matter? Nothing. Yeah, I can see it on your face. Nothing. Yes, there is. No, nothing. I'm sure there is. No, there's not. And I kept getting more and more sort of frantic inside as a parent. How can I get inside the heart of this child to get the heart to open up? And I finally kept getting more and more insistent. Finally, I told this child... If you don't tell me what's in your heart, I'm going to spank you. I didn't know what else to do. I was getting desperate. And at that point, the child just broke down in tears and just sobbed. I said, what's the matter? Well, I I don't like to be alive. I don't like to be a part of this family. I just wish I were not living. I don't remember what all was said. But do you think about a father hearing your child say something like that. It's devastating. You want to be a good father? And I became almost panicked. What now? But no, relax. All right, so why do you feel this way? And the child shared some things. Well, this is happening a little bit here between you and mom, and this is going on in the way you relate to the children. And I said, yeah, I know We haven't done what we should have. We have failed. So I'm sorry. But I told the child, I think more of it is actually that Satan wants you to imagine the situation worse than it really is. And I would ask for you, I'm going to try to work on what God wants me to work on. But I'm going to ask you to keep your heart open that maybe Satan is trying to get you to imagine it worse than it is. Are you willing to do that? Sure. The next day, I talked to the child again. Everything. What do you think? No problem. They were cheerful, happy, clear. A week later, I came back and I said, how's it going? What do you mean? Well, you know, a week ago, we talked in the bedroom, and, and they totally forgot. They were completely at rest. But if a parent does not have the heart of the child, those things happen and sit there, and start tumbling around inside, and the heart becomes more and more confused and tangled. And then when they get converted, unless someone helps them clear all of that up, they tend to build a a false floor in their heart and push all that junk down and try to live out of the, the part of their heart they've been honest about. But then they go on on through life, and in some of their relationships, things don't go well, and some of these relationships remind them of that relationship back there that was hard. And when that happens, it's a trigger, and they remember. And they they experience more hurt. So they, they they don't want that up here where they're trying to keep it clean, so they sort of open like a trap door, stuff more down, and then shut it again, lock it. And then when more things happen up here that remind them, 
it keeps popping open. And finally, this down here gets so full that any time it sort of pops, stuff comes out. And see, in our relationships, you know, if I take this cup and I hit it and there's water on the floor, why is there water on the floor? Anybody? Exactly. Most people would say because you hit it. But see, here's the thing. Every one of us will be hit by difficult things in life. There's no way around that. And whatever's in our heart is going to come out. But here's the problem, and here's where it ties in with fear. There were things down there in my heart that I was afraid what God might think if I was honest about it. Because when those hurtful things happened, there were things that I did in response. Remember I talked yesterday about is the difference between responding or reacting? There were things I did was reaction that I later regretted. But now what do you do? Now it's done. You can't take it back. That was down there in my heart, those things that I had done. And if I'm going to be honest about the hurt, try to get that cleaned up, I also have to be honest about my reactions and my sin. And I'm afraid. What will God think? But also more than that, I'm afraid. What will my preacher think? What will my parents think? And so I go on through life scared to clear that up because of what others might think or what God might think. And I try to live out of just part of my heart. When I finally came to the place to say that, you know, why should I be afraid of God? Doesn't God know everything? So why can't I tell him about it? And, you know, we have this idea from through counseling that our leaders have to earn our trust. Our leaders have to earn our confidence. That is not true biblically. That is, that is arising out of the idea that we all have our rights. We have, you know, human rights. I have my right, my personhood. And I can stand on my rights and I can de- demand that my rights are met. Biblically speaking, when we understand spiritual authority, we are expected by God to choose to trust our leaders. And there's more to us being proud to not expose that stuff than there is of fear. We talk with people. I was talking with someone the other day. Their marriage is on the rocks. Has been for years and they don't know what to do. Well, are you willing to try? Well, I don't know. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of Will it work again? I'm afraid, is my husband going to see what he needs to see? I'm afraid what it might require of me. See, I want to tell you some of these things today because we meet with married couples that have been married for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. 
and their marriages are on the rocks. And it started when they were sitting where you're sitting. We've worked with people who were in moral failure. We've worked with one that as a young married man with a couple children had been into things back there as a single man that he never exposed because he was afraid of what people might think. And he tried to live out of just the, the, the top part of his heart. And as a, as a young married man with a couple children, he actually got so deep into sin that he went to about 20 prostitutes in a year's time and hid it from his wife. As we sit with those kinds of people and try to help them sort things through, you young people don't want to get there. You don't want to get to that place. Because as we sat with that young man and tried to get him to a place of clearing that up, what's the use? It feels like the fight's going to be so hard, it's not even worth it. And we point him to eternity. We point him to what is ahead if he doesn't clear that up. And he says, he just sees the the present fight. And he's trying and trying to overcome it. And how? It just seems like the fight is too strong. But we keep coming alongside and encouraging him and saying, no, deep down you really do want to make it. Deep down you really do want to be a godly father for your children. Let's not focus on your failure. Let's let Jesus clean you up. A lot of us don't see the heart of God in some of these things. When they brought the woman caught in adultery, stop and think how Jesus responded. When I had all that stuff that I didn't know what to do with, I finally came to the place of seeing for a long time, I, to me, God was standing there with a big stick, waiting till I would confess or waiting till I would make a mistake. I finally came to see that my belief system about God was not accurate. It had been based upon my circumstances. And I needed to get into God's Word, and I needed to open my heart to God and His Word and allow His Word to teach and train my belief system. And I started to see a God who is different. A God who wanted to help me. A God who was just waiting for me. You know, just like Peter, he started walking on the water to Christ. And when he took his eyes off of Christ and got his eyes on his circumstances, his present circumstances, he became afraid. As soon as he became afraid, he started to sink. The only reason he lost his faith and started to sink was because he started looking on his circumstances from a human perspective, and he started to become afraid of what might happen because he knew what wind and waves can do. But he took his mind off of Christ for the moment and lost sight of a God who's in control.
one person I know that we've worked with. Tremendous struggle with thoughts. Negative thoughts, evil thoughts. And we say, why don't you just let go of that? Because I'm afraid. Afraid of what? And to give this whole line of reasoning. Well, where does fear come from? Who wants you to be afraid? God or Satan? Now let's back up just a little bit and go through some of the things that I went through. As a four-year-old, five-year-old boy, I was the oldest in the family. Mom had taught us different Bible stories, and us, me and my sister fought like children fight sometimes. And Mom had a difficult time trying to relate to that and, and just relax. One day, at the end of her rope, in her frustration, she pointed out the, kitchen, the, the living room window and she said, if you two don't stop fighting, I'm going to go outside and God is going to open up the earth and swallow me and you will never see me again. And I'm just, you know, I'm not being disrespectful or negative. I'm just saying that's what happened. I had known the story of Korah, Dathan, and Byron. I had known that from the Bible stories mom had shared with us. In my little heart... That taught me that if I mess up one too many times, God is going to punish me by taking away what is near and dear to me and what is my security. From that point forward, I became a very, very unruly boy. In, in school, I was a terror for the teachers. When the teachers would go out of the room when I was in fourth and fifth grade, I would be snapping spit wads around the room and all kinds of things. I was a naughty little boy. I was always in trouble, always showing off, trying to get attention. But here's something that was a, a huge mile marker in my life. In about fourth grade, I was having trouble with my story problems in math. I just couldn't get it. Remember my brain fog and everything? I went up to my teacher and I asked, what about? She, she explained it. I sat down. I couldn't get it. Went back the second time. She explained it. I went back and sat down. I couldn't get it. Went back the third time, and I say it was God's spirit that moved her in this way. And she just reached out and put her arm around me there behind her desk and pulled me close. And she said, all you want is a little love, isn't it? I'll soon be 48 years old. But I still remember how that felt that day. My heart was just like a dry sponge soaking in that love like water if you pour it on. She didn't explain the problem the third time. I went back to my seat and went right through that problem and on through the rest of my lesson. As time went on up through our growing up years, there were many things that I was taught in our home about God, about who He is, and it was not the way God is. 
I have observed firsthand the devastation of mom and dad not being together on issues. I've experienced firsthand what happens when mom tells dad, I've decided that you're not safe to follow, and so I'm going to follow what my bishop taught me when I was a girl growing up. And from that point forward in our home, we had two spiritual leaders. And I was left, we as children were left to fend for ourselves, to choose which was the right leader to follow. I remember the day when I was probably 14 years old, when my dad called the sheriff and ask them what can be done to protect our children from their mother. And I heard his side of the conversation. When he got off the phone, he told me the other side. And he said, they told him, we can't do anything unless you come down to this police station and press charges. And he said, I can't do that. I'm a Christian man. I can't do that against my wife. They said, well, then you have, we'll have to wait until... She does something, and then we can step in and do something. And see, mom, mom was very volatile, uncontrollable, because she was on medication. And since I have studied a lot of research into mental health, mental disorders, and drugs, and looking back, I can see that she was responding the way she was because she was on the medication. I don't have time to go into that now, but we give a whole series of teaching on that, Mark and I. And today we work with people that have severe mental disorders and that are on heavy medication. And we work at helping them to taper off the medication in a safe way, working with their doctor. And we help them work through the hard issues that were there before they went on medication, the reason why they went on medication, and those issues are still in their heart. When the medication comes off, it's still there. It never takes care of a problem. All it does is cover it. And it not only does that, but it causes a lot more problems. But she was, at times, very volatile. Some years later, something happened, and my dad called the ministers and said, Would you please come and see what actually goes on? Mom tried to clean up the mess she had made, but Dad restrained her. It took about an hour and a half till the preacher got there because he lived a distance. He had been out in work, his work. He had to clean up until he got there. He came in, sat down, and looked at the mess. And he said, what's this? And then he got four or five stories. Every one of the family had their story to tell. After a while, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know what to tell you. I guess you'll have to figure it out yourself. So, can you imagine a home that the authorities can't help and the church can't help? And there were times that it was so difficult when I was 16 and 17 years old 
things that happened in the middle of the night that I literally expected that I would probably some night lose my, lose my life. And because of things that happened, I would lock my bedroom door. And during the night, the person would be on the outside picking the lock, trying to get in. There's nothing more panicky feeling than that. I had to take a wooden kitchen chair and jam it under the doorknob as an added security measure to be able to relax enough to sleep as a 16, 17-year-old young man. So that fear followed me on through life into our married life. And then... The Lord led, you know, I, I wanted to get married so bad, and I tried in my own way, and it didn't work. didn't work here, didn't work there. I ended up being known as being somebody that was girl crazy after a while. I finally gave up. Eventually, God brought my wife and I together in a miraculous way. And our marriage today is better than anything we could have ever imagined. See, my wife grew up in a home with a father that was a drunkard. The world calls it an alcoholic. The Bible calls it a drunkard. He was that way all of her growing up years. Her mom had to work to provide for the family. They were a very poor family. When the children were young, her mom went to visit one of her in-laws that were solid Christians. And she asked them, how can I teach my children? To respect their father when there's nothing there to respect. You understand what it would be like to have an alcoholic father. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like there's nothing there to respect. An ungodly man, angry, drunk, out late at night. You don't know who he's with, who he's spending the night with. How do you teach your children to respect a father when there's nothing there to respect. They told her, you teach them to respect their father because God says so and because he is their father. It has nothing to do with whether he deserves it. So as I have grown up through life, and, and my wife and I, we've tried, we had a lot of issues to work through. Both of our homes were a mess. There were a lot of things that we weren't taught. There were a lot of things that we had to learn the hard way. There were a lot of tears in the first number of years of our marriage. But we were purposed in our hearts. I was purposed. I wanted to be a godly man, and she was purposed. She wanted to be a godly woman. And we wanted God to help us to become what we had not been taught. There was many a time that I struggled, and I used to say, I just don't know how. I don't know how to be a godly husband. I don't know how to be a godly father. I was never taught that. And one time the thought came to me like this. I would like to say, I believe it was God. In the Bible it says, this is how 
what kind of a father you're supposed to be, and this is what kind of a husband you're supposed to be. If you come before the judgment seat someday, and God, and, and, and God would ask me, why did you not be that kind of a husband to your wife? You knew the Bible said that. And I would say, well, because I was never taught. I didn't know how. And God asked me, will that work? Will that be enough excuse to get you out of bearing the consequences of not being obedient to Scripture? And I had to admit that no, that would not be enough of an excuse. And so I said to God, I need help. I need you to help me. And today I would say that my wife and I have a marriage that is beyond anything we could ever have imagined. God has given us a lovely marriage. We have the hearts of our children. There's been many a time in the last five or six years when I could tell somebody, at this present time, we have four teenagers in the house. But we have never had any teenage rebellion. Sure, we've had issues come up. We've needed to deal with issues. But we have the hearts of our children. In that, I have found the reality in my life that God is able to be a father to the fatherless. In that, that I was not taught. How to be a godly man. If I went to God and asked him for help, he was willing to help me. But this continued to cause struggles even in our marriage. <clears throat> and it was, I was in my 30s and, and I was struggling with some intense panic attacks at night. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my heart would just be pounding and my throat throbbing and my, and my neck would be tight almost to the point I couldn't hardly breathe. And I'd feel all clammy, like what I would call a cold sweat. My whole body would be stiff. And I'd look out into the hallway and to me it sure looked like a dark presence. They're just coming. And I would just freak out and just put the covers over my head and just sit there and shake. And eventually I'd look again and things seemed to be cleared and I would go on with life. About the same time, one of our girls started having nightmares. And would come to our bedroom just all shaking and white and she had a nightmare. And so I would take her back to bed and try to comfort her. And I didn't know how to do that because, see, I had gone to Bill Gothard's seminars and I had been indoctrinated with his teaching. And I use indoctrination for a reason. And he would teach that if a father has a hole in his umbrella, that Satan can get right through the children. So I'm helpless. I can't help my child because I'm struggling with the same thing. It's actually my fault, right? 
And so I just don't know what to do, and I keep trying to get the child over the struggle. And, and I, I uh, finally, out of desperation, started saying, if you don't go back to bed, I'm going to spank. Well, that doesn't work to try and fight fear with fear. It doesn't work. But we continued to cope and limp along through life. And then we start hearing this teaching where you rebuke the evil spirits and you plead the blood over things and you do all this spiritual verbiage and somehow there's power in that. And I, in all faith, started doing that. But that made the fear worse in my child because the reality was that she had a nightmare. Now dad's praying that it's Satan's fault. Now all of a sudden, not only do they have to worry about the nightmare, but they have to worry about Satan yet. Because it was still happening. And you know, we had gone and heard these teachings such as, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We'd heard these teachings that uh, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. And I started to just meditate in my own heart. What does that mean? Perfect love casts out all fear. And I meditated on that for a week or so. And again, one night, about a week or so later, the child came in the middle of the night, shaking because of a nightmare. And I was so tired, I didn't feel like getting out of bed. And again, I say it was God, and, and I, just, I just said, how would you like to crawl in beside me for a while? Yes. So I lifted the covers. The child crawled in. I put the covers around with my arm around. And in less than one minute, the child was fast asleep. The fear was gone. If you would turn with me. And let's just look at some of these verses that we have heard all this teaching coming out of all these different counseling centers and all this teaching. Everyone claiming to be have the answer. And I shared all that I did to show you that I understand the fear. To, be, to not be able to go to sleep at night because... You don't know if your mom is going to kill you tonight. I understand fear. So let's go to 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The people that try to say that that is some sort of a living entity hovering, they never go on and say that's the same about the other. They only interpret part of the verse that way. But we don't say the same about power or love or a sound mind. If we would, then we would be saying those are good spirits. But let's look at a few other thoughts in the New Testament about fear, and then I'll come back and give you a biblical 
interpretation of spirit of fear that is consistent with all of Scripture. If we go then to Romans 8.15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so any young person that is struggling with fear is not going to be able to reach out in faith and get a hold of adoption to becoming a child. Because like Peter walking on the water, it was either faith in Christ or fear of the storm. And then in order to change it, it had to look back to Christ in faith and the fear went away. The two cannot coexist. 1 John 4.18 For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear of torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. When my child crawled in beside me and went to sleep immediately, it was like God told me, that is how it works. If you want to have freedom from your fear, you need to understand my love. And understand how to draw near to me. So I started looking through the scriptures. What it means. What God's love is. And here again. We have all these teachings bombarding us about God's love. You know God is a lovey dovey God. And he's patting you on the back. And he's put his arms around you. And you can imagine sitting in his lap. And all these things. That they want to try to stir up emotions. And, and get all excited. But all they're trying to do is. Excite your psyche. It's not feeding the spirit. If we look in the Bible at God's love, it is always connected in relation to our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I started seeing that I needed to come to the place of understanding how much I had sinned against God and how much he was willing to forgive me and only then could I understand his love and that God never promised no bad things would ever happen. God has never promised that. God has not promised that we won't face loss of a loved one or an accident. You know, we have this idea that if we just live perfect enough, we won't have some bad accident or something like that. And then when someone else has a bad accident, sometimes we're tempted to wonder, well, what's wrong in their heart? Or if we face something that's difficult, we start to question whether we're right with God or what we did that made God angry. There's nothing wrong with with opening our heart and allowing God to search us. But we need to recognize that God is not a, a, a God who is there to with a big stick to just beat his children up. Because God, it says in Psalm 103, that that God, if I can't get it here pretty soon, I'll look there, says that God pities his children like a father pities his children. And if I I would take my little child that's just learning to walk, as soon as he stumbles and falls, I give him a big whipping, you would think that's very unkind. That's not normal. It's the same way with God. When we become a child of his and we start learning to walk, And we stumble and fall. God knows our heart. He knows if we purposely 
started walking in sin. Or he knows if we were just walking along and we stumbled. And there we have the promise of Second John 1. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's not when you sin, it's if. So we aren't supposed to give license for sin or, or, or sort of have like a, an insurance policy that we're expecting that we're going to sin and we sort of leave that door sort of hang open. But we need to have the assurance in our heart of understanding God's grace and not let fear control our spiritual walk. See, there's a, there's a, a proper fear. In Psalm 111.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Matthew 10.28, this is Jesus speaking, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. A lot of people talking about the fear of God are trying to sort of sugarcoat this thing and trying to make it not so bad. They're, they're trying to sort of push this out of one ditch, but they end up pushing it into the other ditch when they try to talk about reverential awe. This is more than reverential awe. When you talk about fear not him, them, which could kill the body, that's a literal fear. And he's using the same context when he goes on to say, but rather fear him. So the fear should be there that if we go our own way, we are going to suffer consequences. But we shouldn't live in fear. The Bible says the fearful and the unbelieving are going to not enter heaven. However, that's worded there in Revelation. The fearful, those who are full of fear, those who are allowing fear to control them. It is amazing how many people, how many young people are making the decisions they make because of fear. They're afraid that if they do this, then this will happen, so they do this. It's, they're, they're focused on fear, and that is not what God wants us to do. So now let's turn to 2 Corinthians 7. This is something that stood out to me in a way that was very helpful for me. Here Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There we have that fear, the proper fear that the Bible teaches us. Receive us. We have wronged no man, we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you, great is my glorying in, of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For, now notice this, when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Within where? I believe it means within their own hearts. Nevertheless, and look how God looks at fear. God that comforted those that are cast down. Doesn't that define someone who's struggling with fear? They're cast down. How does God deal with it? He comforts. How did it work with my child? Comfort. 
When there was comfort, the fear left. God that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Now, if you're struggling spiritually, and you start hearing or reading a story of something that God is doing somewhere else in other Christians' lives, somebody is seeing their sin and they're repenting and God is cleansing them and cleaning them, or, he, or they have not been born again and they get born again, or, or maybe some miraculous thing happened where God met somebody's need. Doesn't that encourage your heart? That is what I see in this. If we are struggling, we need to look around for where God is and how he's working, not only in others, but actually in our own life. Now let's take this a step further. And this might be a little stretch. But when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was holding that cup and looking at it, And he was saying, God, please take this cup from me. The Bible doesn't go into all kinds of definitions about emotions. But according to our understanding of emotions, what emotion was he feeling that he didn't want to drink the cup? We want to be a little careful with that, but in our understanding of fear... He did not like what he was about to experience. He was feeling trepidation. It was almost more that his his humanity was almost able to bear. And it was so much so that he sweated as were great drops of blood. And it was so bad that the angel came and comforted him. And yet God still required him to go through what he wanted him to go through. Now let's go back and think about the spirit thing. Throughout the Old Testament, and you can do your own study on this sometime, but it, it, it'll say this. It talks about the spirit of jealousy, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of princes, the spirit of man and the, that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward. Did you know that beasts have spirits? The spirit of burning, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the spirit of Egypt, the spirit of heaviness, the spirit of the kings of the Medes, the spirit of the living creature, the spirit of whoredoms, the spirit of grace and supplications. Now there's, I believe that there are several different ways to understand spirit. Like God's Holy Spirit, I believe, is an actual living being. But all these other types of spirits including spirit of fear. If you look at power and love and sound mind, it is something emanating from the person, an essence of. Fearful is an essence of fear coming out of them. If you're around someone that has a lot of fear, there's something coming out of them that you can sense that. If someone has power in the way they respond, you can sense that. If they have Love, you'll sense that. Sound mind or not a sound mind, you'll sense that. Some of you may have never experienced this, but we had a young man in our home who actually had a mental breakdown while he was there. That is a very challenging thing to be around 
when they no longer are in their right mind. And so I would like to encourage that I believe that a biblical understanding of a spirit of fear is not a living, hovering entity somehow floating around, but rather in the context of that verse and in the context of the rest of the way it teaches about fear, it is essence of. And when we start struggling with fear, we need to realize it tells us something is wrong that we need to get right. We should never trust in our fear. We should never let fear control us or dictate, or direct. Because if we do, we will come to the end of our life where we will be fearful, and we won't enter heaven. But the problem with all these other teachings is, it ends up bringing people to a place where they are afraid of being afraid that they're afraid. And they get into such a trap that they're locked, and they can't get out. And so if there's fear in your life, it says something isn't working right. If there's fear in your life, it says that somehow you're not believing something right. It says you're not trusting in God. Here's something that really helped me a lot. When I first started turning around my life, I heard a message that said, whatever, that, that whatever you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you believe... And, and then the person went on to say this. You show me a, a, a young lady who's a worrier... And I'll show you a young lady whose God is not in control. You show me a young man who's living fast and loose with sin, and I'll show you a man whose God is not real and will not require consequences. And so you think of any problem or struggle that you might have, and you think about how you're understanding God. And if you understand the God of the Bible, you will will start developing the power to have victory over that struggle. Because the bottom line, in all these things that come to us, over and over we find that either they are not converted, or they're not converted fully. Maybe they've repented of their sins, but they're not walking in belief, in faith. They have unbelief in their heart. Even though they've confessed their sins, they have unbelief that's controlling them. And a lot of times, fear is causing all that to happen. And just real briefly here, how does discouragement come into this? Discouragement happens when things don't go the way we think they should go. And we're sure it needs to go differently. And so fear and and discouragement sort of go right along together. One's just a little bit one way and one's a little bit the other way. But they, they both are are actually a lack of keeping our eyes on Jesus. I would also like to encourage that just because someone is struggling, or if you're struggling now, or you face a struggle in the future, of feeling afraid, or of feeling discouraged, to not get all down on yourself and beat yourself up, but just recognize something isn't right, and bring it to God in faith. I think the time has come to close. But the one thing I'm wondering, I've been honest with you about my life. Are any of you at a place where your heart is not clear? Because if your heart's not clear, 
even though you've got all this knowledge, you go home, you're going to face situations at home that you're not going to be able to walk in victory. And I'm just wondering if you are at that place, if you would be willing to stand and we can ask one of the brothers here to just pray for the group. And I would ask if you do stand to make it a a purpose in your heart to either talk with someone here or your local ministry at home and make sure you get your heart clean and clear because you don't want to end up someday like some of those people we've talked about. And I'll make one more comment, and it's this. With all that my wife and I went through in life, I look at situations where people justify being, women justify being out from under authority because their authority isn't godly. Young men justify being out from under their authority because their authority isn't godly. We tend to justify our behavior because surely God didn't understand this or he didn't mean this when he said, this is how you're to respond and how you're to act. So one of the things I wanted to just really lift up is the importance of being under our spiritual authority, not to challenge our spiritual authority, to be open and honest with our spiritual authority, and to not let fear control our responses. Could we have a verse of song, and if anybody, just maybe one verse, and if anybody would like to stand to just publicly just say, yes, I'm, I do want to clear things up in my heart, and I would do want to talk with somebody either here or at, at home. Can we have a verse of song?